Hey everyone, thanks for coming back to Real Leaders. I'm Sue Heilbronner, your host, and Real Leaders is the podcast that brings you the story behind the story of some of the most authentic, innovative leaders in the world. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, I wanna make one ask, if you like this show, if you listen to other shows in Real Leaders Podcast, and, and go, like, don't go now, listen to this one now, but later, go listen to some other shows. Please take a minute and rate this podcast in iTunes. It matters a lot. It's a little janky. You'll find your way. Search for Real Leaders in iTunes and click leave a review. Today, we are really fortunate to be joined by Luke Saunders. He's the founder and CEO of Farmer's Fridge, a Chicago-based company that you are about to learn all about. If you live in Chicago, you already know all about Farmer's Fridge. Hey, Luke, thanks for being with us. Thanks a lot, Sue. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. So, Luke, you may or may not know this. The way we start is by you giving us your three-minute life story. You're not really on the clock, but that's just a framework. Go. <clears throat> okay. In three minutes or less. So I grew up in New Jersey. Um, I was born in a small town about 45 minutes west of New York City. And around, I would say my first business was actually I sold some plants. So my mom was an avid gardener. And as a result, she always had extra plants every season. And so I would take those to a town fair and actually sell them off the back of a wagon. And I, I recall that as being my first real entrepreneurial experience. As I got older, I definitely loved anything entrepreneurial. So my first job, I worked for a small landscaping company. I would go after school and, and water the plants and help break leaves and things like that. And then when I left home and was in college, my number one thing was I really didn't like the food they served. I had My mom was a, a really great cook and had always cooked with lots of vegetables. And so I just, I vividly remember kind of that experience of loving the idea of having Froyo and all I could drink soda because I was a freshman in college, but then none of the fresh fruits and vegetables I was used to getting at home. And I spent four years in St. Louis at Washington University. And that's where I met my now wife. So that's probably the number one thing I took out of St. Louis. And um, I had a bike rental company in college. I definitely learned a lot about running a small business. That was the first real enterprise. It was uh, 150 bikes. By the time I graduated, we actually sold it and it still exists today. And then what I was supposed to be doing there was uh, studying international studies and Chinese. I really loved that major because it was all different kinds of classes. So I could take anthropology, economics, business, as long as I could figure out a way to tie it back to international studies, I was allowed to take it and it counted towards my major. And I took Chinese because I had had an opportunity to live in England for about six months before my freshman year of college. And one of the interesting things about living there was that uh, they were very focused on the transition and rise of China as a global superpower, which at the time, it certainly wasn't on my radar as a high school student, but it became something that was really fascinating to me. And that's it ended up being why I studied Chinese in, in college. Hmm. Yeah, so I actually had a chance to live in Shanghai and, and Beijing for a little while. I studied Chinese in college. And then when I was graduating, it was the middle of the recession. I was applying to different jobs and didn't want to move back to China to work because my wife had gotten a job in New York. So I ended up actually taking a job at a small grease lubricant business that happens to be a family business. So it's three people. We were in a little place in 
Long Island City, Queens. And I did everything from mix the grease to answer the phones for two years and help them to overhaul that business. And then when I needed to leave because my wife got into law school in Michigan, I was only able to get a job as a metal finishing salesman. So what? That was like <laughs> yeah, your whole that, career that was, was plant related. Plant like growing plants, not factory plants. How the heck did you end up in a grease and lubricant business? Um, so you know, as if it was a family business, my dad had. Oh, it was your it was your family? Yeah, yeah. He had been actually in HVAC distribution. Um, that was him and his brothers for like 30 years were selling air conditioners and heating units to um, contractors and retailers in the tri-state area. And actually they sold that business when I was probably like 12. And I think that that obviously was a big inspiration for me being an entrepreneur. I grew up in a family of, of small business. Like that was how I looked at the world. And for some reason, he held on to this one portion of the business that was grease lubricant manufacturing. So they made this really specialty grease that they sold. And he bought out his brothers and he kept it. And it was really this tiny thing um, just to keep busy. And so for 10 years, it worked out really well. But right as I was graduating college and it was the recession, uh, we both had a problem, which was I was borderline unemployable. Um, <laughs> well, what with your Chinese, Chinese uh, international relations studying? Yeah. Or what else, is there something else that I need to know about that rendered you unemployable? Uh, I mean, I was not an exceptional student. I had like a, a 3.0 average, like a B average or huh. a solid B average. It was a true average. So there was some C's and D's and some A's. And um, Luke, I think I hadn't said it so far, but I should say in full and fair disclosure, the investment fund I'm related to, Mergeline, mm -hmm. which you know about, uh, yep. is an investor in your current business, which we're going to get to. And I wonder, should I have known? I don't think any disclosure was made about the C's and D's at Wash U. <laughs> just wondering, would we um, have done something different? I'm kidding. All right, so keep going. We could get to it later, but it's actually, I, I think, one of the things that's been really valuable is, is, as a CEO is the ability to really deprioritize and, and focus on, on just the important stuff. So when a class was really important, I got an A, and when it wasn't so important, I, I might have not gotten a, a good grade. Which is okay as long as you and your investors are aligned on what's important and what's not. Or maybe it's not. Maybe I guess I guess that that, that isn't required either. No, I think that is true. Like okay. You definitely want to have the board and everybody. Yeah, so. yeah, cool. All right. Anyway, back to your story. So you're in the grease business because you were unemployable, because you had C's and D's and maybe some other things, and it was a recession. So you're doing grease. Now, yep. one thing you said is you overhauled the business. What did you do in the grease company? So I moved it from a facility in Lyon City, Queens, uh, to New Jersey. And actually, it was just a coincidence, but we ended up in Linden, New Jersey, which is where uh, Blue Apron just moved their, their manufacturing huh. plant. Um, so it's a, it's a very industrial part of New Jersey. It's about 15 minutes south of the airport. And in doing so, we actually, it was only three people there at the company to begin with, and they were basically at the end of their career. So we were in a position where I had to, I had to basically do every job at the company for about six months and then slowly rehire people to answer the phone, mix the grease. But I, I literally would, I actually would listen to podcasts all the time. So this is full circle. <laughs> um, 
and I would, I would be mixing grease in the back room and answering the phone through a headset. And so it became a one man shop because sales had contracted so much and we had to move the facility. Um, and the people that were there didn't want to go with us. It was like $20 in tolls, believe it or not, wow. to get from where they were in New York to the facility in New Jersey. So literally a complete overhaul. It was losing a ton of money when I started, which is something I didn't know prior to starting, actually. I thought I was going to be showing up and getting like, you know, not a big paycheck, but a paycheck. <laughs> and, um, and then quickly realized that if I were getting paid, there might not be a company to pay me in wow. the near future. So canceled that and, and took a little bit of equity in the business. I actually sold my car and invested that money into the business mm -hmm. and did that for a few years. And what happened then is because I was now a specialist in grease lubrication, I had to figure out how I could get a job in Ann Arbor. And so I was at the time, looking at... Well, hold on. The way you just said that, it, you didn't yeah. need to get a job in Ann Arbor because <laughs> you were a specialist in loose lubrication. You needed to get a job in Ann Arbor because your girlfriend was going to law school at Michigan, right? Yeah, that's okay. right. I that's just want right. to be sure we get the, uh, get the, no, the, the that's, that's cause correct. and effect right. Okay, so there's, cool. there's a theme here. So we, yeah. we, we, yeah. So she'd been there for a year, and I was looking at options to move to Ann Arbor. So once again, you're unemployable because you're an expert in grease lubrication. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Basically. Got yeah. So you got an A in that, but it may I, not I be did. Yeah. I got an A. They were they were making money. I was finally getting a paycheck two years later, and then of course it was time to move on. So I agreed to stay on like one day a week and and work on that. But I was going to find a job in Ann Arbor. And what happened is actually ended up in uh, as metal finishing because it's it's pretty adjacent. So if you're selling to engineers who are building things that need to be lubricated, right. they can use crease lubricants or they can use metal finishing. And so I went to a metal finishing company that's based in Linden and let them know that I was moving to Ann Arbor. And they said, well, we, we could give you a sales job there. We won't pay you very much, but it'll be good training. And I said, absolutely, I'll take I mean, that job. You started out not getting paid at all, so that was a huge raise. <laughs> yeah, it was it was great. And so I trained with them for a few months in New Jersey and then moved to Ann Arbor to do that. And so I was a field salesperson for them for two years. And And what that means is you go into factories or you meet with engineering teams that design factories or equipment for factories and work with them to solve really specific problems using coatings. So think of like the industrial version of your nonstick pan in your kitchen. Got it. I, I love thinking about that. I, I, you're probably not surprised to know it's the first time I've ever thought about that, but thank you for throwing it out there. Okay, so you are a complete expert in foundational materials for manufacturing. And somehow you end up founding a company that delivers incredibly delicious, healthy food through highly efficient vending strategies. So help, help, help me get there. Essentially, it started with the fact that I was telling you as a child growing up, food was a big part of my life. And I used to love not just the food I was eating, but I would cook all the time. And I just loved food. Well, if you're a traveling salesman, those two things don't really mix that well because you, you don't have a kitchen in your hotel room. You can't really cook. And there's a lot of the places I was going, the only restaurant was a fast food place. So I was constantly thinking about where I was going to eat. And I spent a lot of the time on the road, you know, planning my trip around, you know, how I could get to this whole foods to get a salad or 
finding a really special like mom and pop restaurant for certain type of cuisine, but it was just not a great experience from the food side. And I started thinking as I was going into these factories and looking at how they made a lot of the food that we consume and then leaving and going to the fast food place down the street about how those two things had not really been connected. So if you think about how they make a granola bar, it's a massive thing. One of my best customers was a granola bar factory in Michigan. And they bring in real ingredients. Believe it or not, it's like the oats come right off the truck. I used to walk in and they had this massive stainless steel two-story cylinder full of chocolate. Mm. It's like you'd smell the chocolate walking through the front door. And and then they created a line that would take it and, and make a granola bar by the millions of bars. Right. And it was extremely efficient. And what you don't think about very often is... I was walking out the door and and alongside me are the employees leaving with those very same granola bars to take home and eat. And so conceptually, why can't you produce food this way and then give it right to a customer? And the main reason in the CPG world is because the supply chain. So the tractor trailer that shows up and collects all those granola bars, takes it to a distributor, takes it to a distributor, takes it to a distributor, who eventually, maybe six months later, it ends up at the gas station down the street. And so then you go into the restaurant and you watch them make your food. And it's really how manufacturing looked 150 years ago. You place an order and somebody makes your order at that moment. And it makes a lot of sense if you're making like French fries or something that really are only good when they're hot. And so the idea was, so what's really the issue here with making it in a manufacturing setting? It's the supply chain. It's getting it to customers quickly enough that they still want to eat it. So if I told you I was going to make French fries and make a million of them in a big factory and then ship them to people, nobody would eat those French fries. And the same thing is true about a grab-and-go product. If you could make the best salad on the planet, but if you put it in a truck and wait three months to serve it to somebody, it's going to taste really awful. So I started thinking about how could I make a system that would leverage the best parts of manufacturing and assembly line production, but get that product to people the same day and in an economically viable way. But one of the big constraints that I made was it could not be a restaurant. It had to get to people more conveniently than a restaurant would. Let's say you have 5,000 people in a town and you want to open a restaurant. You open a restaurant right in the, they find the center of the 5,000 people or the place they all go by every single day and open your restaurant right there. And that's essentially what fast food does. Right. In order to compete with that, I had the insight that you'd have to somehow become more convenient and create a unit economic model that was more efficient in order to compete against these businesses that have massive, massive scale and a lot of institutionalized subsidies. That meant if I could get it into the office building lobby or at the hospital while you were there for another reason or inside the gas station Um, somewhere where you were already going and it was more convenient than the restaurant option and that it tied to that manufacturing back end 
So as I started to think about how I would do that, and you got to keep in mind, I had a thousand miles a week of drive time. Mm. So that's a lot of time to think about. Yeah. I mean, you were pretty much out of podcasts at some point. So yeah, got that. Yeah. And so, you know, I I sort of, as these different design constraints, as I pressure tested them, the idea came to me, well, if I had an automated front end, so something where I didn't need any people on the front and it could sell food 24 hours a day. And it would give me real-time inventory to tell me what to bring when I was restocking it. And it'd be small enough that I could fit it into any lobby and just use this dead space that was otherwise completely unoccupied and, and of zero value to the landlord, um, that I could solve this problem of how to distribute it. And then, so it worked. I'd make everything in one place and I'd bring it out to these delivery spots. And when I described that to someone else, they actually said, well, that sounds an awful lot like a vending machine. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, yeah, because at the time I, I was thinking I'd have to manufacture a special box. And um, we still do make the equipment, but we're able to utilize different off-the-shelf components to do that. Okay, I want to bring this home so everybody knows what we're talking about. Because if you don't live in Chicago or Milwaukee, you may not know what we're talking about. So the company is Farmer's Fridge. If you go to FarmersFridge.com, you'll see lots of cool pictures of it. And what I want to do in explaining this, Luke, is I want to explain my experience and the only reason we're in this conversation. Sound good to you? Yeah, sounds great. Cool. So I am right now sitting in a building in Chicago, and it is the building in which I discovered Farmer's Fridge. I came to this building, I went to Snarf's to get a salad, and I was like, ah, these salads, they don't look that good. What's that cool green thing, those two giant boxes over in the lobby, because they look like big-faced boxes, and you then discover that they're fully cool, automated, with a highly visual digital display. They are these vending machines. And the food in them looked incredible. There's a, a window, you could see all the food. It's packaged in these very cool cylindrical things that are totally recyclable at the machine, at the point of purchase, which of course I totally fell in love with because I haven't used a plastic water bottle in three years. Um, and I was just inspired to get this Thai chicken, what's, what do you call it? What's it called, the Thai chicken salad? Yep. Yeah, so it's in a cylinder. There's dressing in a container on top. It's totally TSA friendly, which is a huge aspect for me because I also travel a lot, not by car, not in places that only have fast food restaurants. Like I travel to places like Chicago. Anyway, I bought this salad. It was unbelievably fresh, just incredibly delicious. It was like my fantasy salad right there out of this random vending machine. It was clearly had just been made that morning. And I fell in love with the entire user experience. I fell in love with the salad. The next morning, I went back and did what I also did this morning, because I'm in the same building right now, and I bought the almond milk granola breakfast thing, whatever that is, which is incredible, and I I still have my container here because I'm going to go downstairs and recycle it, and I thought, this is the best idea I've seen in a very long time. I'm an investor. I want to find out who this company is and what they're all about. I tracked you guys down, told you I fell in love with the product. Turned out you were raising a, a, a bridge round at the time. And, uh, and ultimately, after some due diligence, Mergelane made an investment. And I won't say more about that because I'm going to defer to you on saying more about that. That happened in the last couple months here. And yeah, so you're all over Chicago right now. You're also open in Milwaukee. And as I got to know you guys, one of the things that really struck me about this business is the stuff you've already gone a bit to describe, which is number one, it's linked to highly efficient manufacturing. Number two, the distribution channel is incredibly efficient. And number three, the entire business is data-driven. And especially that third point, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think intuitively at the beginning, 
because I will admit fully, I had no idea what <laughs> like a, a, a data plan or any you know, other than the one on my cell phone was. Um, was that in order to make this work, you were going to really have to understand what was selling at each location, and how to plan inventory to perfectly match what that location was looking for. So. In order to, like, as, as I was thinking about the box and what it would need to do, that was a big part of it. The, the technology was going to be critical to understanding site by site everything that was selling and the velocity that it was selling at, and maybe something was slowing down and we should swap it out for something else. And, and that that would also be tied to the customer because one thing that, you know, the best restaurants in the world are really known for having a great customer experience. And you can't really have a great customer experience if you don't know your customers. And it's really hard to know your customers if you never see them. So what I had realized is that we're at a unique point in time in history where we could actually get real-time access to all the sales data to help us better plan the inventory, not just, you know, numbers in the box, but what we're creating the different types of menu items that we come up with and what's selling and what insights can we glean from that. But also we could forge a direct relationship with consumers and use that data to personalize the experience and have a stronger bond with our customers. So we leverage that in a very unique way. And, and actually, I don't know if you are a rewards member. If not, you should sign up and become one. I know you're not in town every day, but 40% of our transactions right now, people will come and sign in and actually say, this is me, I'm here. And that allows 40%? us to continue. Yeah. Why do they do that? What, what, since I'm not a rewards member, but I'm going to do that when I go recycle my container. I mean, they must be getting something really good from you. What are they getting? So you can earn Fridge Greens, which is basically our proprietary rewards program. And then you can redeem those greens for free meals, for special events. And occasionally we'll, we'll do promotions where you go there and you get double greens for purchasing. But it's, it allows you to earn rewards. And for us, it allows us to better understand what individual customers want and need from us as a provider of food in their building. And then it's also allowed us to communicate directly with them. So a big principle at the beginning was, I think this is uniquely possible at this moment in time because I will be able to communicate directly with these people that I will never meet. Okay. So you make it incredibly prominent and then you really encourage people to sign up for this rewards program in your machines. But I skipped it both times, many <laughs> times, actually. It's like I'm on my 10th encounter with these machines out of two days in town. So I enter my cell phone number. Give me, give me a user experience that's just going to delight me once I've done this. Just one example. You get the, you enter your phone number, we sign you up. Let's say you buy the Southwest salad, oh, and only when you go. Two things might happen. One, you could get a special offer on a Southwest salad because we haven't seen you in a while or just because it's a nice day and we want to do something nice for you okay. uh, or it's your birthday, something like that. Um, but we also may see that, you know, based on your purchase history, you may like this other item that you haven't tried. Okay. And so we could just add that for free to your cart and say, you know, take this with you today, give it to your friend, do whatever you want with it. But it's something that we would like to do for you as a frequent visitor. Okay. And the main purpose, like you have, you obviously have incredibly good data on what's coming in and out of machines. I know you do a ton of testing. You, t you recently tested a new beverage and I saw today that there were other things that were in there for the first time that I hadn't seen before. 
-hmm. and you're going all the way through to get customer information. It, is the primary reason for that to optimize your menu planning or to increase revenue by upselling and cross-selling and reminding? I mean, I really see them as the same thing. So, for example, with the drinks, we had our own ideas for what we thought customers wanted out of our drink menu. We were smart enough to, before we created a bunch of drinks that we thought were great, just send a note to the customers that frequent certain fridges and say, what drinks do you want in this fridge? And actually, the answers we got back for them were very different from what we had expected. Huh. And, and so we were able to develop the drinks that those customers wanted. At the same time, if we know that like we'll survey customers that are in the in the program and we may find that they're value conscious or they're trying to eat healthier and so we can also encourage things like that so maybe you know here's a here's a bottle of water at a discount or try this item because it's actually got less fat in it than something else and okay. i think using it both ways both as menu planning but also bundling which ultimately creates a better customer experience which ultimately leads to higher revenue Okay, that's, that's really helpful. And just give us a couple minutes on just the basics. We, you started the company, this happened, you know, how many units you have now in Chicago and Milwaukee, what you're, where you're headed next from a market strategy and sort of fundraising. All that in two minutes, just, yeah, I'm sure that'll oh, be. Sure, yeah, so, I mean, we gave you the hard part, like how did the, the metal finishing uh, Chinese major end up in the uh, vending machine yeah. food service business? The first fridge opened in October 2013 in the middle of a food court in downtown Chicago. And the premise there was, I want to be in a place with lots of restaurants. It can't be a captive audience because if we can't make it work with a lot of restaurants, then this will never work. And it basically took off in that food court. From there, we grew to today. We have over 100 locations around the city and up into Milwaukee. We're in airports, universities, hospitals, convenience stores, drug stores, you name it, we've tried it. At this point, the plan is continue to saturate Chicago and Milwaukee. And then as we have been preparing this past year for expansion, we'll do, a, the next step is to do another region. And so prior to doing another region, we plan to raise uh, capital for that expansion. But right now, we're exclusively in Chicago and Milwaukee. And the way the business works is no different than, I mean, there's a lot of differences uh, around the edges, but the premise is exactly the same as when we started, which is every single day we get a report from the fridges that says, here's what I need for tomorrow. That's based, today it's based on a cost function algorithm. When I started, it was me and a spreadsheet. But then we make that food to order overnight. We put it on a truck and it goes out and gets delivered that day. So it's this really tight five-day-a-week daily delivery cycle at 95% of our locations. And then some places like the airport and certain hospitals, we actually go seven days a week. But it's just that premise of we're going to make this food today. We're going to serve it to you right away. And it's going to be like us cutting the lettuce on the line. We're going to cut avocados and put them right in the jar. We're not going to take any shortcuts in terms of preservatives or using ingredients that are going to last longer, we're just going to make the freshest possible products and get them to you as quickly as possible. And you're serving Milwaukee and Chicago out of the same commissary, right? Yeah, that's correct. So what does it look like? I mean, one reason you're raising money, I imagine, to go to a different region is a new commissary? Uh, yeah, and, and also just getting the infrastructure and making sure that we launch the way that I did it here. 
I would never do it this way again is we opened one fridge and I built it one by one. So I'm actually standing in the room where we have all the old fridge skins uh-huh. and there's like 30 or 40 of them that we actually, I built, like I helped install them. Um, they were, it was really like everyone was a snowflake and that's how we had to do it. We were iterating and, and growing as a business. The next market we want to open with more like a hundred or 200 fridges and some a commissary that's set up and ready to go from day one and a team on the ground so that I, I'm not going to every grand opening and I'd love to go to some, but it's just it, having the infrastructure to actually launch a market the, the right way from the beginning. So Milwaukee, we launched 10 fridges at the very beginning and that was, it's just absolutely the right way to go. And that was from our facility here in another region. You want to do more like a hundred or 200. You know, I have a decent understanding, at least some understanding more, more than more than somebody who's never heard of you or just has bought products from you on the back end of how the business operates. And so one of the things I like about it is it actually is a technology company in many, many ways. So there's so many opportunities for scale. I still imagine as you talk to new people, especially new investors, there are a lot of questions about scale. How do you think about scaling a business that requires daily delivery and cutting of avocados by real people and all of that? Yeah. I mean, to me, it's, it's, um, it's a question a lot of people ask, but it's a little bit misframed. So for us, we're, we're really comping against what does it take for a restaurant to scale? Right. And we are orders of magnitude less complicated than running a 2000 unit restaurant chain that's trying to handle fresh ingredients. Right. And those have scaled no problem. Uh, not like no problem, but they, there's, <laughs> Bigger food, bigger food companies than us that have done it with a lot more complicated business model. And so what we've really focused on is building the foundation to be scalable. So we spent really the first three years refining the business. It was just, you know, let's, we need to have our own software and what does that need to look like and how does it need to work and what's going to make it scalable and how do you get the, the fridge itself to be in a format that uh, the design not only works in, in an office building and a drugstore and a university, but it's something you could deploy rapidly. So like right now we can, from the time we have a signed contract, to the time a fridge is in place, we can do that in under 24 hours and it only takes us 30 minutes to install it on site. As far as making the food and scaling that side, again, unlike a, a, a restaurant chain that's scaling nationally, we'll have six or seven centers of production versus thousands. And so it it just, and we can afford to have food quality safety people on site to make sure that the products are consistent. So a lot of the things that seem really hard from the outside and and they are like, it's been very difficult to get to this point are actually extremely scalable from this point on. So once you have that core critical infrastructure around the software, the production, the food safety, the distribution, it becomes really easy to add incrementally to that load. Got it. And first of all, how many people do you have that are full-time employees now? I think we're around 90 is the last number I got. To be honest, that's a good example. Like, I don't know the exact (laughs) number. Yeah, that makes sense. That's sort of like the class you got at DN. Um, (laughs) And how much money have you raised? Uh, About $18 million. Great. So how has your role as CEO changed since 2013? So, you know, when I first started, I was really hesitant actually to call myself a CEO because it was just me. And I I was pretty insistent that I wasn't going to hire anyone before I started because I had no money. 
you know, I was going to chop lettuce and make the salads and I was going to deliver them and then stand there and talk to customers all day and then, you know, repeat that. Thankfully, I had some really good advice from people that are still great mentors and they, they told me, you got to hire someone to help you make this food. And I did, I hired two prep cooks and we, I still ended up making food with them for the first couple of days. But I was literally in the kitchen. My office was either sitting in the kitchen, answering questions, making sure every salad was perfect, or sitting in the food court, answering emails and talking to customers. But those were my offices, was, was the kitchen and the, and the food court. And I had direct access to the everyday production. And I, I was picking up produce and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Mm. I was building the fridges. It was just, it was it, my number one asset at the beginning of this business was the fact that I was working 20 hours a day and wasn't going to give up. Mm. And today it's still true. I work quite a bit, but I have an entire team of people who all got A's and everything they've ever done. <laughs> And are just way more qualified than I am to do oh. any of the, whether it's marketing or sales or operations or menu planning. So like I designed the first menu. I worked with a local cafe to come up with a, about half the salads and then moved out of Ann Arbor to Chicago. So I lost my, my menu development partner and I ended up just coming up with the next 50%. Mm. Things like that just wouldn't happen today. Um, and so I spent a lot more of my time focused on reinforcing that core vision because what was easier back then is I didn't have to explain to anybody else that, you know, today we were going to put the the fridge in this food court in downtown Chicago, but the, the long-term plan was to have, you know, tens of thousands of these and put it in, you know, every school and, and places where right now there's not even a fresh food option of any kind. And sort of like that whole strategy from A to Z, I, I could keep all that in my head and, it was motivating to me and, and I would just keep going. Now I have to spend a lot more time reinforcing that with right. the team. So, yeah. I, so I actually spend most of my time just reinforcing the values and the vision and making sure that the things that we're doing are all aimed at that long-term goal. <laughs> but I have people actually that are way smarter and way better at their functional areas doing all the day-to-day. Yeah, your staff is really strong. If you're if you're listening to this, go take a look at Farmer's Fridge and, and see who's working there. Incredible range of experience in food, logistics, data, the rest. Really, really strong team. Okay, what are the benefits and disadvantages of being headquartered in Chicago for a company that is venture backed? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna reframe that a little bit. The the benefit of being in Chicago for a food business, <laughs> I think, is is unparalleled. There's, you're from Boulder, so I think clearly there in the CPG world, there's some really deep roots and, and a lot of success stories. But but in Chicago, I mean, some of the biggest QSR concepts and CPG companies are based here for a reason. And so there's a ton of um, food talent and people that have mentored me that have built really big food companies. Yeah. So that's a huge, the ecosystem is just designed for it. But the other thing is, the cost of getting started here. So I was able to make a lot more mistakes. My kitchen was at, you know, 10 minutes from the first location where in New York, it might've been an hour and a half. And there was just a lot of advantages, even the talent pool, because the cost of living is lower here. So are the salaries. And so you can get amazing people and not have to pay them as much, but they're actually living a better quality of life. So just everything 
from a business running a business standpoint is great in Chicago. And I, I say all the time, if I hadn't started here, I think we would have failed completely. And, and I, I don't mean that hyperbolically. Um, and for different reasons in different markets, but this was absolutely the right place for this business to be born. Okay. On the venture side, I mean, it's very obvious, like we do not have the same access to capital markets in Chicago that you may have if you're in San Francisco or New York or Boston. So it was much more difficult to raise money. The positive of that was actually it forced us to be a lot scrappier and more disciplined with the little bit of money that we did have. And it also gave us a longer runway to really refine the business model. Because what I've seen, especially in food, is a really good idea, like really has a chance of, of doing something really impactful in food, gets too much money too soon, hmm. and then they have to grow, try to grow right. so quickly to meet the expectations and, and pay that money back that it actually destroys the underlying business. And so what I was, at the time, I was not liking this so much, but it was actually very difficult to raise capital and valuations were not crazy high. And so we were forced to be really scrappy and focus on refining our core business. So how do we have the best product? How do we create the strongest relationship with consumers because we can't afford to buy them. They have to just try the product and like it and come back and then tell their friends about it. And that's a much different business than if you can just continue to feed new people into the funnel with cash from a venture capital firm. And the three years that we spent really doing that, I think gave us a rock solid foundation to grow on. Um, but at the time I was not very happy about it. What do you think is a characteristic of yours that has made Farmer's Fridge a contender, like that has gotten you where you are, a characteristic of you as a leader? Um, I think I've been very fortunate in being able to attract some amazing talent. So the, the people that work here by far and away is our number one competitive advantage. Can we, can we move away from fortunate and just talk about what you bring to the party that's made that happen? <laughs> I accept that you're also um, yeah, fortunate, sure. just so I it's think, useful for people. They're not out just sure. looking for a four-leaf clover. Okay, great. Oh, okay, yeah, sure. So I think if you're being specific on like why that has happened, and, and I think they'd be better people to ask, but, but from my perspective, I, I think being really clear about the vision and what we're trying to accomplish allows people that are high performers to come in and feel like they can be successful. Hmm. And so you're really upfront with, here's what we're trying to do. Here's what I need you to do when you get here. And they feel very confident that they can come into this environment and be successful. Because people who are successful, the number one thing that they want is to work on projects that are going to be successful. Um, and it sounds like a little bit of chicken and egg, but if you've got a really clear articulation of your vision and a really clear articulation of why they're essential for it, and they, they believe in that and buy into it, then they'll come work with you. So I think that's been really important. And I think I've spent an, a lot of time, because I didn't always love the places I was working before, and I saw some of the challenges of recruiting people to a place like a grease lubricant manufacturer in Linden, New Jersey, of making this a place that people really felt excited and energized to come into work. So that has helped and and allowed me to recruit people that were far more qualified or way out of my league hmm. because they saw that we had a really clear vision, we had a path to success, and that I was in there working it with them to make sure that this was going to be successful. 
but also that every day they were doing it. And, and you really, for the best people, they're giving you a piece of themselves. And so they have to like what they're doing and they'll perform at peak potential. Um, so I think that was a big part of it. I would say my understanding of the customer. So I'm very, very focused. I think about this moment all the time where I was sitting in my car eating this salad and it, you know, like sad salad in the car, <laughs> listening, to, listening to the podcast and like looking out my window at a dumpster or something. Right. And, and all by myself. And I think, you know, that's the person I'm trying to make their day a little bit better in that moment. And, and doing that with the food that you sell is, is, hard, but if you think like, it just helps me to, that I have had that experience and I'm thinking about that person while I'm making the product. So everything from the jar with the green lid, it had to be, it couldn't just be like a flat pack salad thrown in a vending machine. It had to be something that you'd feel good about when you took it back to your desk, people would ask you about it mm. and you'd feel like this was something special. Um, so that you'd, and, and even just down to how we process each ingredient that you there'd be things in there that you'd know they did a little extra work and they did that for me. So I think for <laughs> me have having that, um, that focus and then just, I mean, the ability to just work through difficult things or ambiguity where, you know, we had times we had one day, the entire fridge network went down and you know, how to respond to that. So I've been, really good at just dealing with things that are completely out of left field without getting totally bent out of shape or seeing it as the end of the world. And with a business that's complicated, I think that's really important. So, Got it. So on the flip side, well, it's not really the flip side, but on another side, I have this theory that we all as leaders or as humans have received essentially one piece of feedback that is exactly the same for our entire life. And we work on it and we work on it. Mine, which anyone who listens has heard before, is, Sue, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And I hear this feedback, and I'm 51 years old, and essentially I want to scream every time I hear it because I spend a tremendous amount of time working on this issue. And when I screw up, that's where I screw up. So what's yours? Ooh, that's a really interesting question. I... So I think my, the thing I get pretty consistently is my ability to articulate what I'm thinking to someone else and actually have them understand it on the first try. <laughs> so okay. like, um, definitely just communication in general. It's where I spend a lot of my time and, and actually one of the members of my team, Shana, is incredibly important in helping me to become a better communicator for the rest of the team because that's the number one area that I struggle with is I can see it. I can see it very clearly, but how do I communicate it to someone else in a way that allows them to act on it? And when you're not communicating whatever you would classify as clearly, what else are you doing? What's the receiver receiving instead? I think it can be... And it's probably clear as people are listening to this podcast, but I'll, I'll think through things out loud. Mm. And so if you're just, you know, a, 
a normal person off the street and you're listening to me think through something out loud, you may not fully know when I'm, what is the moment that you're supposed to be paying attention and listening to the thing that's important for you. Got it. Great. And so, so having, I need the exercise. I'm, I have certain people I can like talk through it out loud and get my ideas straight and then communicate it in a way that's clear to the rest of humanity. Sometimes I'm blending the two things together. And it sounds like from your sales background, if you just go drive a thousand miles, you get a lot of clarity. So that's another background plan, a yeah, backup plan, if you get really desperate. Right. Um, yeah. So what's one thing you've experienced as an entrepreneur, just one moment where you really learn something big and you think that that piece of learning might be useful to people listening to this podcast? Um, so I think that every time I've been discouraged because something didn't go exactly the way that I planned or I thought a door had been closed and I just assumed that that was it and moved on was not true. And so like there was a point I reached where I think it was like one of the absolute lowest points I had, um, really wanted this location and really tried very hard to get it. And then the guy kept saying no. And so I gave up and for a time I came back like six or 12 months later asking for it. And he said, Oh no, it's actually, you need to talk to this guy. So I called him up and he said, Oh, actually I, I already, I already gave it to somebody else. Hmm. And in that moment I could have said, Oh, okay, fine. And hung up the phone and given up. But I actually said, you know what, this is so important. I tried to convince him right there on the phone and he still said no and hung up. But then he called me two weeks later and he said, I've been thinking about what you said. And I actually, I agree with you and I'm going to give you this space. And so I, I think what I had learned is that, you know, a lot of times we take no or a rejection at face value and really it's on us to articulate our position and win people over and it is possible and it's often a good thing for both people. So like I, in the sales job is a good example. I hated being a salesperson when I thought of myself as like selling something. So like going in there and trying to get you to buy this product that I was selling was very uncomfortable for me. But then a similar insight around realizing that I was actually there to educate you on solutions to problems that you had and be a partner with you. Mm -hmm. And when, when I was doing that, it was really a service. And, mm -hmm. and so I just think be, getting comfortable with that. Cause it's, if you let people just say, no, you may have to have a tendency to just go on your way. But a lot of times if you can step back and actually reevaluate and try to approach it in a new direction, you can get what you want and everybody's better off. That's great. Thank you for that. All right. I don't usually do this, but I have three self-serving questions and I want you to answer each one in 30 seconds or less. You ready? Sure. Why does Starbucks routinely run out of spinach feta wraps? I mean, they uh, know, I, I, they know how many spinach feta wraps are getting bought, right? They have a POS. Why do they routinely like every day almost run out by noon, which is when I want to eat one. Best guess. 
Yeah, my best guess is that their POS system is not tied directly into their manufacturing procurement system in the way that ours is. And so right. it becomes very difficult to manage that inventory. So that maybe every day they sell out at noon, but their POS has no idea. So nobody's getting that feedback to up the par level. Okay, that was a good 30 second answer. If you're on listening to this podcast and you work at Starbucks, can you please call Luke and the folks at Farmers Ridge so you can figure this out? Question number two. Why isn't kombucha available at airports and gas stations? So I think the primary reason is the in the air in, in the gas station environment, it's it's most likely price point and uh, customer awareness. So if you're a kombucha drinker and like it's it's moving mainstream, so I would expect to see it. Like I've actually seen kombucha at convenience stores here in Chicago oh, where it never would have been kidding. before. Really? Okay. Yeah. So right. I, I think it's just where it is on the adoption curve. A, a convenience store is generally less skews. And so they focus on the highest velocity products. Okay. Have um, you put a, kombucha in any of your machines? I actually drank a canned kombucha today. Unfortunately, we, can't, we cannot use glass. Okay. In the, in the airport, I have no idea. And I, but I would, I will give you my best guess, which is that they have contracts with people who right. represent the biggest beverage right. concept. Like, and so it's very difficult to get your products on the shelf. So until a kombucha company or another one, because I think one already has been, gets bought yeah. by Coke or Pepsi, I'm not going to see kombucha in the, in the airport. Do you think that's probably true mostly? I think that that's likely the answer. All right, great. <laughs> to be honest. My yeah. third question is two of your favorite podcasts. So I love Planet Money. Okay. I listen to, I've, I've probably listened to almost every episode. Um, and then Masters of Scale is, oh. is my current. So, so Planet Money is probably my longest list and most listen. And, and Masters of Scale is a recent uh, love affair. Awesome. Those are really great answers. And of course, after today, I know Real Leaders is going to be on that list. Hey, Luke, thank you so much for joining us on Real Leaders, really. This is Luke Saunders. He's a founder and CEO of Farmers Fridge. You can learn more about them at farmersfridge.com. And trust me, if you live in a metropolitan area, you want these guys to come to your area. This is almost as good as the next corporate office of Apple. So reach out to them and see if you can talk them into it. As a reminder, Real Leaders podcast is brought to you by Leadership Camp. Leadership Camp is a two and a half day deep dive into conscious leadership. It builds more self-awareness and more self-aware leaders, and it helps make leaders go from great to extraordinary. Find out about the next women's or gender mixed leadership camp and reserve your seat today at leadership.camp. Thanks for being with us this time. Thanks for coming back. We'll see you on the next episode of Real Leaders. Comments, feedbacks, any questions, find me at Twitter at TellSue. Have a good day, everyone.